This is Entheogen, talk about tools for generating the divine within. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Sign up to receive an email when we release a new episode. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. Hey, everybody. This is Joe with a special announcement. We've just doubled our listener base to over 12,000 subscribers in the last two months. We'd like to take a moment to welcome our new listeners and to thank our listeners, new and old, for spreading the word and supporting the show. Going into season three of Entheogen, we've launched a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to invite you to please support us by pledging between $2 and $10 per episode. Please visit entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again. Today is July 20th, 2016, and we are reflecting about our talk with Dr. Julie Holland, psychopharmacologist, psychiatrist, and best-selling author of several books. We were so honored to be joined by Dr. Julie Holland uh, last episode. And we wanted to spend a little bit of time reflecting on it and uh, just revisiting some of the topics we, we talked about. Um, it was honestly a real honor to have her. And uh, Kevin, I know you were just like uh, giddy with excitement after uh, that episode. So, Yeah, yeah, for real. Why, why wouldn't we be? I mean, uh, she's uh, such a uh, sort of a, uh, a personality and such a great source of knowledge. And uh, someone that, uh, I don't know, we've all kind of followed for, for such a long time and uh, that, that she was willing to give give that much of her time and, and uh, in such a, uh, a qualitative way was pretty awesome. So I was just so impressed. She's been toiling in the trenches for, for years. I mean, I remember that, you know, the ecstasy book that she wrote years and years ago. She's written a pot book and she just came out with Moody Bitches, as we discussed on the show. Um, and she's got the street cred. I mean, she's been there since the beginning, since before Maps was Maps. She's been friends with Rick Doblin. Uh, she dropped the fun fact uh, that she took MDMA with Rick Doblin on the last day it was legal. Uh, I thought that was pretty amazing. I hadn't. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty much like the only way you can say you did that, right? It's like, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. No, I did that. Yeah, it was still legal when I did. It was the last day. Yeah, exactly. It was the last day. I mean, I, I think that you know, even if it wasn't the last day, I think they they can just say it was the last day, and it kind of sounds better that way. Um, but you know, she mentioned how, uh, she, you know, even if she never wanted to be outed, she kind of had no choice, uh, to be other than to be outed as a psychedelicist by none other than Rick Doblin, who uh, would always introduce her as uh, the woman he took MDMA with on the last day it was legal. So I think that's another kind of fun fact about Julie. Yeah, that, that that like you said, she's got the street cred, and it sounds like uh, I don't know. Like, I feel like there should be like a, a documentary about that, you know, that episode. That's uh, that'll go down in the annals of uh, psychedelic history for sure. Yeah, the last day, June thirtieth, nineteen eighty-five, is what she uh, when she remembers it. It was also impressive. She, uh, you know, we asked her a little bit about her origins in in, in the whole field, and uh, you know, I was. I just, uh, I don't know, I found it very um, interesting that she just said, you know, from a very age, a very, very young age, I was just very interested in uh, in all sorts of drugs and how they changed people and kind of the, the you know, the different effects they had. And, and I just kept thinking like, you know, so so were we, you know, yeah, That's, uh, right. so were we, we just didn't know we could become psychiatrists and, uh, you know, and, and, and go down such a legitimate path towards this, you know? Yeah. Or we did. And, and then we got high, you know, there's that kind yeah. of situation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was going to get my PhD, but then I got high. <laughs> exactly. So right. <laughs> precisely, precisely. 
Very yeah, nice. I don't know. It's uh, it's so interesting. And she's got such a good take, you know, being in that field. Um, you know, she's, again, like got the street cred. She sees patients. She sees patients with all kinds of, um, you know, questions and, and potentially, you know, disorders and things like that. And uh, we, she talks so candidly about uh, big pharma and uh, the dangers of big pharma advertising directly to patients, uh, talking about things like, you know, do you suffer from restless leg syndrome, otherwise known as RLS, you know, and then oh, R- suddenly RLS is a thing. And you know, she mentioned um, excessive daytime sleepiness, EDS, you know, and it just kind of like pathologizes these like normal things that everybody suffers from from time to time. Um, the, and she described them as very like almost like niche, uh, you know, very uh, illnesses or disorders that um, might affect a very small number of people. Uh, but then the pharmaceutical industry decides to you know, again, pathologize it and basically then like make it seem like it's much more common than it is. So you see this thing on TV and you think, yeah, maybe I do have that. Um, it's just, you know, it's just interesting to hear her perspective as someone that is hearing from patients who are asking for things like, as she put it, uh, you know, that one with the horse, you know, or, or uh, do you know that butterfly sleeping pill? Is that one better than the, than the other one? And, you know, it's just so, it's such a, um, it's just such a nightmare uh, for, for people uh, to sort this out. Sure, and I think she, apart from her her street cred and then her legitimate cred as a as a doctor and the experience she's had, uh, what most strikes you about her is sort of her kind of vibrance and overwhelming humanity, um, and and this is very evident when she was talking about big pharma and in, in particular and sort of uh, how the business side of it has gotten so out of control that now it's um, it's become a machine that that is regularly advertising to patients so that they will pester doctors and then on the other hand um, advertising directly to doctors about specific conditions and basically just like you said pathologizing every single thing that you you could feel other than perfect happiness and turning that into like a, me- a medical problem that needs some sort of uh, pharmaceutical treatment I could see them distorting uh, perfect happiness too. Are you suffering from permagrin? You know, like we can, <laughs> yeah. there's a treatment for that too. Um, did, did George Carlin say that, you know, when someone was more than happy? More you know? than happy. Yeah. <laughs> we had to put Dave in the home. He was more than happy. <laughs> right. More than happy. I bet you say that sometimes, don't you? Once in a while you say to somebody, oh, I'd be more than happy to do that. Can you be more than happy? To me, this sounds like a dangerous mental condition. We had to put Dave in the mental home. He was more than happy. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting about um, just just like you said, the advertising directly to patients and then also like targeting doctors and, you know, they telling doctors that, uh, you know, your patients may be uh, embarrassed to ask you about this. So you, you might as you know, you might want to ask them and, and see if, uh, you know, see if this is something that might, might help them. It's basically like turning doctors into pill pushers um, and it's, I think the way she put it was her direct quote, big pharma is not about creating cures. They are about creating customers. I mean, that yeah. is just like, well, so well said. Yeah. It's just, it, I feel like well, I get shivers when I, when I think about that. But it's almost like, you know, I brought this up briefly during the interview, but I almost, uh, you know, it's, you can never place blame 100% in the same place. And we, we know big pharma is a business that's 
how it exists. I mean, it's uh, we, that's the sort of society we live in. It's a capitalist society. You have to, uh, you know, you have to produce profits. Obviously, you have to produce something worth creating profits in the first place. But it's almost like there's a uh, there's a there's a larger government issue here at, at play, and uh, one of the things we talked about during the interview was that, um, you know, my at least my experience sort of uh, with the European medical system is that because it is a uh, whatever you want to call it socialized medicine single payer sort of system, um, there seems to be a lot more protection against that. I mean, you have the same exact pharmaceutical companies; they're doing all the same exact work, yet they're, they don't have this sort of uh, entrenched influence on doctors or patients um, because they're not selling to the patients. The patients don't can't push the doctor for a specific medicine, at least not in the public system, perhaps in a, in a private system they can, but it's just such a small niche that it's uh, not noticeable. But um, for me, it was really startling when I first uh, moved abroad, just, just noticing like, you know, I came from New York, which she talks about uh, at, at length as being, you know, just a very neurotic, uh, miserable place, despite all of its good things too. But, um, and I just remember everybody had prescriptions. Everybody, everybody I know have prescriptions for something. Every single thing that could possibly be wrong with you requires a prescription. Everybody's got a prescription. And then because there are so many prescriptions floating around, then there's a lot of sort of uh, bl black market exchanging of things and and sort of just, just a deep knowledge uh, that the average person has about pharmaceuticals and how to use them. And, and this is something I did, I just did not notice when I uh, when I moved abroad. It's just that the average person knows nothing about any of these uh, compounds, and they're they're only prescribed when a, a doctor decides they need prescribing. And it's this, you know, again, it's big pharma. They're they're doing the same work, yet they're they're just checked a lot more severely. And I don't mean in a legislation sort of way. It's in a it's in an economic way. It's just that the healthcare system itself decides what uh, medications to to purchase, how much they you know, not how much they want to pay for them, but sort of buying them in bulk. And there's just a, there's a whole different economic dynamic that uh, sort of prevents this. Uh, just this frenzy of uh, over medicating. So it's all it's obvious to everyone, I think, in the in the United States that uh, you know the the ads come on TV, and uh, you know we see the ads and we maybe identify with the you know characters on TV and think, oh, we we I may be suffering from this, and we go to our doctor and we say, you know, might I be suffering from this, and the doctor may be sympathetic to that, and and maybe we get a prescription. How does that whole like dynamic change in in Spain, where where you know you have more socialized medicine? Well, you know, as you were saying that, I'm thinking the the first thing is that if you ask, I think the average, uh, I don't know if I want to say the average American, but probably and definitely the average New Yorker, they they can just name a lot of medications. They just they <laughs> right. just know the names of a lot of them, and I find that that that's not normal here. You you'd find that. Uh, people here and there will know, you know, some medication because some member of their family was particularly affected. But I just don't, uh, I just don't ever have any any contact with that. And there's, I mean, uh, there's no recreational use that I've seen of that sort of stuff, and it's not spoken about uh, at all. And and in New York, I can say that it is very openly spoken about. Uh, there's no sort of stigma about that, and people are very very freely speaking about their their sort of habits. 
That's true. And, and Julie did speak to that too. And she talked about how, you know, it's the conversation has kind of evolved from, you know, do you know the butterfly sleeping pill to, you know, how does Lunesta compare to, uh, you know, whatever. And, and my friend tried this and, you know, said that these were the side effects and, you know, it's, the conversation has just become much more nuanced. Um, but like, and it's consumerism 100% that's, that's, all around. That's I true mean, too. Yeah. There's there. I mean, they're, they're, they're not even only advertising the, the sort of, uh, health benefits, if you want to call it that they're, they're also, there's, there's like, there's branding involved. Right. I mean, it's, it's fully the, the advertising marketing machine is, uh, you know, at full, at full throttle. The other thing that seemed really kind of nefarious from what Julie was saying, which, you know, was gave us a little bit of a glimpse behind the curtain was, uh, she talked about how, um, you know, now, women are being targeted for, you know, do you ever overeat and then feel bad about yourself? And the solution to like, you know, uh, binge eating disorder or whatever it's called, or, or, you know, whatever they uh -huh. want to call it, uh, is it like high dose, long acting, uh, amphetamine. The Shire, the maker of the drug, uh, I guess the drug was going to become a generic and because they, you know, quote unquote, found a new use, uh, for it. Um, they were able to like push through a study that, uh, showed some marginal benefits and in, in some extreme cases, um, because they found a new use for it, I guess they, their, um, sort of like monopoly on this drug was extended. Well, the, the, and then the amazing thing about that is that, you know, like you said, you were talking about amphetamines and then she went on to, to also mention opiates and all, you know, all of these, or not all of them, but a large majority of these drugs are amphetamines and opiates. And uh, these are things that already <laughs> exist on the black market, uh, and just under different names, and they're not run by a, a pharmaceutical lab. And they also have the same quote-unquote health effects. You know, I mean, uh, ask uh, you <laughs> right. know, ask any crackhead if they've uh, overeaten lately. <laughs> right. You know? Exactly. Right. I think I think as Julie put it, duh. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. obviously it has these other side effects, and uh, yeah, I mean it's. It is. It's just. A, it's. It's really sad, you know. And and then we we took the conversation and kind of turned it toward the more promising medications that have existed for and and been known to be effective for you know hundreds if not thousands of years, namely cannabis, for example, and. I, I mean, I'd be hard pressed to name, you know, any kind of serious side effect of cannabis. And we all know, you know, the, the many, many benefits that are emerging, you know, by, by the, by the month and year as, as, uh, medical studies progress with cannabis. Um, it, and it, which makes it even more sad that everyone is hooked on pills, you know, of, of various sorts and mostly opiates and, uh, vitamins. Sure, and I think she she very intelligently made the point that um, uh, you know that all the sort of medication uh, is designed uh, you know in in the in its pure sense it's designed so that you take it for a period of time to alleviate some sort of uh, problem, but that then you stop taking it, uh, and that is not what's happening. It's that people are becoming fully dependent on these medications, um, and and sort of. You know, when she went on to talk about cannabis, she said something like, you know, cannabis use, it's obviously you're not developing, developing any sort of chemical dependency and you're also uh, sort of creating a, an anti-inflammatory habit that, uh, that could be good for you. And I think it was good of her to get sort of more nuanced about cannabis because I think, uh, you know, for, for me personally, the thing was always I don't like smoking and I don't like the way smoking makes me feel. And, and, and obviously you don't have to read too much to know that smoking in general is not good for you. So I could never kind of, um, 
I could just never work that out. That that you know, yeah, cannabis has its interesting effect, but it has to be smoked, so, and I don't want to do that. So how do how do you balance that out? And she went on to talk about a lot of rectal administration. I, I can tell your uh, your eyes lit up when she mentioned rectal administration. Is that uh, is that what you're she, getting at? She did. She did. She did. And she also, I have to say, uh, I was uh, very impressed. She was the f- the first person to ever say the word dildo on this podcast and, that, that uh, can't be right i think i think we need so, to go back and uh, listen no, to the last no, no, 31 I, episodes I, I, personally i was uh, i was surprised that it wasn't me that had right. said it uh, <laughs> but you know she you know julie holland uh, you know if you're entheogen trivia first word first time the word dildo was ever said on this podcast julie holland <laughs> nice nice credit <laughs> credit to the good dr julie herself <laughs> Well done on that. I well also got a kick out of that. You know, that she was telling that story. It was about um, a patient for who, for a variety of reasons, couldn't uh, take cannabis through uh, any any other via. So she she had done it uh, vaginally, and uh, but I was well, I guess more impressed with how she did it. She had to put herself in an inverted yoga position to allow uh, sort of the drug to take effect and to you know give it enough time. And I just thought like, wow, this is uh, you know. This is this is some serious uh, <laughs> some serious medication. You need to be able to do an inverted yoga position to take it. Right, exactly. So, uh, yeah, like, just you know, get into yoga, do five years of it, then come back, and we'll give you some. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the lengths people will go to to not get high from their medication. <laughs> really impressive. Totally. But also, that that was another good point. I mean, you know, she talked uh, at length about edibles and. And I have to say, for for me, it's always been the one substance, uh, you know, for the the reasons I mentioned previously that that I don't like uh, smoking. It doesn't make me feel good. And then the other thing was uh, I had tried eating it several times and every single time came to the same conclusion. And that was 30 minutes into it. It was that I hated it and I wanted it to end as soon as possible. Um, and so I guess, you know, that's where she was going, that there are um, better ways to 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 sort of dose and then also, you know, other, other methods of taking it that kind of eliminate those negative effects. If only you had a vagina, you'd have so many more options available to you. (laughs) Yeah. The edible thing is really interesting, you know, and this is, um, now becoming much more widely known. I mean, it, it used to be something people would giggle, giggle about, uh, you know, years ago, um, about, you know, we had cookies and, and brownies even before that. And, uh, you know, and these days it's something that I think is becoming more mainstream thanks to probably Colorado, most of all, you know, legalizing it. Um, and, and yet there's a lot of drawback to that. I mean, there was a negative article. I can't remember. Um, who, do you remember who the author was who wrote about it a couple of years ago, going to Colorado and trying some like, uh, you know, edibles and like basically having a horrible experience and like overdosing? Yeah, I, I do. I do remember that article. Like, I don't remember who wrote it, but I mean, it's, 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 it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, they, they don't. The dosages is not the, uh, it's not regulated. The law sort of needs to improve and and, and regulate things a little bit better. Uh, and then, like Julie said, you know, it's like who eats one third of a cookie? I mean, if a cookie has three times as much as you need in it, no one's going to eat one third of it. They're going to eat the entire cookie and, and possibly more, uh, especially once they start feeling stoned. Right. It's it's definitely irresponsible of the uh, the cannabis industry. The you know the the nascent cannabis cannabis industry. Um, you know for uh, not self-regulating a little bit better, you know, for going a little bit overboard with some of these edibles, like you said, and like Julie said, 
you know, I mean, right. Who's going to eat a part of a cookie or a part of a brownie? Like, you know, you could, you could make a brownie with uh, like a normal dose of weed and then somebody can eat two if they want two, you know, if they want double like, that. Like, uh, like at my mom's house, for example, like while she's sleeping on the sofa, right? Is that what you mean? That sort of thing? Exactly along those lines. Yes, <laughs> precisely. <Right. laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and so, you know, the, at, now the industry is at the risk of being, uh, you know, a little bit more tightly regulated because they're not uh, self-regulating uh, carefully enough, I think, in that regard. And also it's a matter of education, you know, whatever the dose is of an individual, you know, unit, cookie or brownie or a piece of a whatever bar of some sort, um, I think that uh, education is needed too. Uh, for example, Julie emphasized the need to wait two hours before reevaluating dosage of a of a you know consumed uh, cannabis. Once again, this is like it's sort of like catering to all of the you know the weaknesses of the of the person you know eating a, a marijuana product. You know, it's like well, you know you need to not eat that much, <laughs> right. and then you also need to wait two hours. It's like <laughs> it's like, like, it's like Maybe, weed kryptonite, man. Yeah, seriously. I mean, that. I mean, if anything could be more anxiety-producing uh, to somebody who just wants to, like, you know, just indulge their munchies. I, I don't know what it is. You know, wait two hours. It sounds like uh, like a lifetime. A lifetime, exactly. Yeah, uh, that's a. I don't know. It's interesting to see how this all shakes out. You know, this is all kind of brand new in the U.S., um, so it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, but I, I do think you know, it, consuming it orally is definitely um, an option that will work for some people. Uh, but I think that also people don't realize that it has a completely different effect. It's not just like the equivalent to smoking it. Um, the dosage has to be changed, uh, and the sort of like the the the, the regimen has to be changed, um, and the experience can be different. Even if you adjust for both of those things, um, it can be a distinctly different uh, experience. Uh, and she and I'll refer listeners back to that you know the episode where we talked about it. But uh, Julie again talked about um, eleven hydroxy THC and how it's basically a completely different chemical that uh, I think it's the liver metabolizes THC into. Uh, which just has a different effect or, you know, stronger effect in some ways. It's, it's definitely more similar to tripping, you know, to, to actually having a more psychedelic experience, I think, than smoking cannabis. Yeah, I mean, I would even go further than that. I would say in uh, sort of in psychedelic experiences, what I remember is always an, ener an energetic state of being. And what I remember from the, you know, the few times I've eaten uh, cannabis was that it was totally the opposite. It felt like part of the topography. You know, I felt like there was no way I could possibly move. It was just, you know, an absolutely lethargic state. Um, but then, you know, then again, you get into everyone's personal chemistry and I, I discovered quickly that that was not for me. So uh, another thing Julie talked about was uh, just the how uh, cannabis can be part of, and I think you mentioned it a minute ago, Kevin, an anti-inflammatory diet. Um, I know you've done some research in, into that, uh, you know, no sugar and flour and things like that. W can you speak more to, uh, you know, what Julie's getting at there as far as the anti-inflammatory aspect of cannabis? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's, it's, it's sort of funny as, you know, as I was reading her book, uh, Moody Bitches, which is a great read and I recommend it highly for, for men, especially, I think, you know, it's sort of an un unfortunate side effect of the title, even though the title's funny, is that it, um, 
kind of makes it seem like it's directed only at women when it's a book that I think men would find really interesting. Um, and, and then I thought it was very cool of her to go into the diet because, you know, basically, you know, she's talking about kind of all these uh, neuroses we're suffering uh, all over and, and particularly women. But, uh, you know, she comes back to the, the solutions to these problems are, you know, the same solutions that have always existed uh, and that modern society is particularly not very good at, which is eating well, sleeping well, ha you know, having sex and getting exercise. And uh, it's, it's that simple. Um, and then it's particularly with diet, um, you know, our, our, our diet has obviously just gone more and more to shit over the last uh, 200 years or so. And I would even go back even further, but, uh, but, but basically just, you know, we've eliminated sort of the variety of foods that made us, uh, a healthy species. We've just kept sort of limiting them and, and narrowing them down to a very small group. And then we started adding things like sugar and flour, uh, to, to that diet. And, uh, that's when things got really bad. And, uh, you know, the side effects are everything from physical problems such as diabetes and so on to autoimmune diseases and then there's obviously a psychological component to this that if you physically aren't well then obviously you're not going to be psychologically uh very well adjusted either and um so yeah i guess you know she just mentions cannabis sort of in that whole uh frame of reference and that sort of the anti-inflammatory effects it has and that it you know it can be included into your uh, your diet as a way to sort of, uh, you know, regulate your immune system. Right. And also, um, it has, you know, relaxing effects and recreational effects. And Julie's other, you know, one of our favorite quotes, I think was that recreation is therapeutic. It's not yeah. an either or thing. It's not like, you know, cannabis can be either recreational or therapeutic. I think that the recreation that you get from, uh, you know, some psychedelics, uh, including cannabis, uh, can certainly be therapeutic because it's, it's relaxing. It's an outlet. It lets you, uh, you know, it's, it's de-stressing. Um, all those things are anti-inflammatory. So it, it kind of fits in with that, that lifestyle. And it's no wonder, I think, uh, Andrew Wheel, right. He's, he was kind of way ahead of his time. Wasn't he a, like a, um, big health guy. And he was always like talking about cannabis as being part of this, uh, this movement. And, uh, you know, it's 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 just interesting to see this becoming such a mainstream, uh, uh, you know, understanding finally these days. Well, yeah, and it, it hope. I mean, uh, I guess sort of the, uh, you know, it, it it helps us get closer to. You know, she she particularly talked about the kind of male and female energies and how we're living uh, in an era of what her her husband called the cancer of, of yang, sort of the cancer of the, the male energy. And it, it's something that, you know, you read Terrence McKenna or, or, or you know, similar authors. It's something they were mentioning already, uh, you know, 40, 30, 40 years ago and then, and then even earlier. And it just seems that the sort of the male uh, energy has just sort of, uh, the male aggressive energy has sort of uh, dominated society now for for a period of time and there's some sort of hope in the fact that these uh substances will sort of bring bring things back closer to stability where there's uh, sort of a healthy balance i guess in closing uh we should just thank uh, thank dr julie holland again for joining us on entheogen and uh for listeners to find out more uh i guess the best bet is to google dr julie holland um also check out entheogenshow.com 
And we'll include links to everything we talked about today, as well as all of Julie's books um, and references. Julie's also uh, currently involved in a study uh, investigating uh, MDMA-assisted therapy treating PTSD, uh, which I know is some recent news. Um, And so you can find out more about this. I guess the best thing to do is to follow at Bellevue Doc on Twitter, and you'll find out the latest from Julie herself. And uh, thanks again to Julie for joining us on Entheogen. That was Entheogen, talk about tools for generating the divine within. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Sign up to receive an email when we release a new episode. Visit entheogenshow.com and click on support to pledge two or $10 per episode on our Patreon campaign. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. And most of all, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.